Before we get started for this week's show, we'd like to thank you all for tuning in with a special shout out to those who support us on Patreon. From just $2 US a month as a patron, you can access extended podcasts and other bonus content. On this week's show, we discuss Dean Jones and his role in the emerging game, amongst other topics, before part two of our chat with Will Glenwright of the ICC. Hello and welcome again to the Emerging Cricket Podcast online and on Sport FM in Perth. I'm Daniel Beswick and with me around the Emerging Cricket table, I'm joined by the two regulars, Nick Skinner and Tim Cutler. We'll have part two of our special with Will Glenwright in a few moments' time. But first, a somber start to the pod and news came in late last week with the loss of Dean Jones. Uh, Quite flawed by the news personally and there have been many tributes around the cricket world for Dean Jones, but... I don't think there's been a lot of elaboration about his role in associate cricket. And Nick, I know we did the global game this week with the ICC, but Tim, you're the perfect person to discuss this with. You did work with Dean in, in Hong Kong. He's also done work in places like Afghanistan and all around the emerging cricket world. Uh, to come from not only him being one of your heroes growing up as a, as a cricketer, to then work with him uh, in Hong Kong and other endeavours, um, he, he did so much for the game. Yeah, well, you hit the nail on the head there, but uh, hero is probably... Putting it lightly, I think I idolised him. I think I'm probably right-handed batting because that's how I watched him on on TV, and he was who I fell in love with the game because as a seven-year-old glued to the screen watching him play. So, well, apart from the, the posters on the on the wall and Kookaburra bats, and spending way too much money on Oakley sunglasses as a child <laughs> to be like Dino, but then to you know eventually work in Hong Kong and Max Abbott. I still don't know how he did it to this day to organise to get Dino up to Hong Kong for that first T20 blitz was amazing. I remember when when he told me that. That's like We've got Dean Jones. Like this was as well as Michael Clark coming in as well. It's like all the Christmases that come at once. But he's like my childhood hero and turns up. It was quite well. Looking looking back at it now, post COVID, even funnier in that he came up economy class only came up for basically accommodation expenses only i think we paid him per diems like 25 us a day or something like that when he came up and felt he fell ill on the way up i guess that sounds really weird now he's like get sick on a plane and power through we actually had to check him into a doctor when he landed but no he powered through he was pillar of strength commentating and stopped by people kids around the boundary to get autographs and whatnot you just see how he lit up everyone's faces and and he was superb and you know behind the scenes he introduced us to ali and amna nakfi who own islamabad united United and they're based in Hong Kong. They've lived there for a number of years and they ended up buying a franchise in the, the Hong Kong leagues. But yeah, just gobsmacked really. I'm one of those lucky kids that grew up and got to meet their heroes and then work with them. And then once I departed Hong Kong cricket, we used to talk quite a lot about the goings on in the cricketing world and each of our futures and where we were going. So looked similar to you. It just floored me really and there's been so many great things said about him you can only really liken it to the, the outpouring of when really sort of phil hughes was struck and, and killed so unfortunately in that horrible accident you know but everybody's sort of you're looking at it from different points of view about what where phil was or philip was in his in his life and fighting back to get into that australian team and, and everybody just feeling for him and his family and what was to come and with Dean Jones is the other way around where it takes everyone back to their childhood and what he meant to them and their cricketing journeys as well. So it's really nice to see so many amazing things written about him from, from around the world. So I can only hope, I guess, this teaches all of us that when you have a chance to tell people what you feel about them and tell them how amazing they've been to you and or to not let grudges eat away at you that you deal with it. But for lots of us who grew up in, in the 80s, 
I think a little part of our childhood went with him as well because that was um, that was who we grew up with. So yeah, look, what he did with Hong Kong was great. And as you said, he moved on to work with Afghanistan and then he took on advisory roles in the Canada T20 and also the Euro Slam working in the background there and would have been commentating on those leagues as well. But everything that you've read about him, how always caring about everybody else and trying to bring players through the system. You know, he was the guy who got in touch before the Asia Cup to find out more about the, the Hong Kong players so he could be informed when he was commentating on their matches against Pakistan and, and India. And I remember watching people tweet during that match and saying, oh, I want to get really angry, but, you know, Dean Jones is really well informed. That's because he contacted those that would know about it to do his research. So, you know, like anyone, he's, he's had his stories in the past, but, you know, the, the guy that I got to know and what we've seen in the stories just... Lost a great person, and as we know, way too soon the way that happened in a traumatic way. So, yeah, hasn't been the best of weeks, but um, I guess it's, it's shown the best of the game afterwards, the way that uh, everybody's got together and all the best for his family. Yeah, I, I, I only really followed Dean Jones, uh, you know, after he retired because it was, it was a little bit before my time on the playing field. But, he, he, you know, he always did strike me as being a bit ahead of his time in the way he thought about things. And in terms of progressing the game, you know, he was big on, on bringing cricket back to Pakistan and indeed going to Afghanistan and, and staying there after a bomb blast outside the stadium. And so he, he was a guy that always was looking to bring cricket forward. And, and I thought that was um, you know, really impressive about him because you know, so many Australian test players and, and full member, you know, kind of in that bubble, it's easy not to look beyond it but he did and I always respect full member players who, who do and I think yeah Jones definitely did that yeah well said fellas and I think he yeah as you guys have put he embodied the the spirit I think of growing the game you know outside its traditional centers and the idea of where you play doesn't determine whether you should be playing and he was one of the first people to go back to, to places like Pakistan where things were opening up again and yeah as we said work in in several parts of the world and yeah the attention to detail and, and Tim I know you know from from knowing you for the last couple of years now being fortunate enough to have you as a mate as well you always spoke about you know having Dean in Hong Kong and, and stuff like that and him always being in touch you know asking about things in the emerging game with you and, and almost consulting so he he really did have that sort of emerging cricket energy um, for a lack of a better term so yeah, it's really upsetting. And yeah, Thursday night when, when we got the news, um, as I said, yeah, quite flawed by it and trying to concentrate putting last week's pod together after Nick edits it and sends it to me. And I thought, you know, we need to put something together on for last week with the news, but I don't think it would have done him justice or, or what he brought to the table. And to have, you know, the chance to talk about it now, I think was really great. So thanks, boys, for that. I think we, we've talked about it, you know, at, at the length that, that we should have there because, yeah, he did a lot for the game and, and we should be thanking him and, and several others out there around, as you said, Tim, you know, making sure that we tell people how much we appreciate what they do to develop the game elsewhere like Dean did. So, yeah, not a great start to the show, but to, to bring it now towards some other stuff happening in the emerging cricket world. And as we said, we're going to be joined again by Will Glenwright in part two of our special with him. But to bring the game to Nepal, ever a popular country to discuss the emerging game in and the, everything that they bring to the table. And we've seen their central contract system rolled out for this year. We've seen a couple of admissions on the men's side, but unfortunately we've seen a bit of a disparity in the pay between the men's and women's side of the game and a few comments around that across social media and Nick I'll, I'll start with you it's not a great look just to show the the figures to everyone at home uh, Nepali rupees the category a b and c contracts there 
50,000 rupees for the category A, 40,000 for category B, 30,000 for category C. But then when we look to the women's, it's 15,000, 12,000 and 10,000 for those tiers. So there is quite a big disparity in those numbers. And, you know, for a country that is developing in the game as quickly as Nepal is and with their women's team relatively having almost a similar success to the men's team, especially in the last 12 months, you have to say that the numbers don't quite stack up. Yeah, I mean, you know, equal pay for its own sake is one argument and that's fine. But, you know, just looking at the minimum wage in Nepal, it's a a minimum monthly salary of 13,500. So when you're offering people contracts for below minimum wage, I think that's not a good start. And, you know, the the vice captain, Sita Rana, said to Emerging Cricket in our story on, on the situation, they should have considered the living expenses. And again, if you're paying them below minimum wage, clearly they're not considering living expenses. And just doing some back of the napkin maths on the amount that they're saving, you know, between the two contract systems, it's it's roughly fifty five thousand uh, dollars US. And when you know Nepal in ICC money, um, looking at you know, where we assume they would be on the scorecard grant based on their participation numbers and and the uh, the competition grants that they've got, they'd be getting roughly you know somewhere in the vicinity of a million dollars US from the ICC. So if you're not doing equal pay and you're saving that $55,000 as Cricket Association of Nepal, what are they spending that $55,000 on that's so important that they can't spare it to have equal pay? I don't know. I think that's a question that is worth asking. And, you know, just from a cricket development perspective, I think they missed a trick, you know. Nepal barely missed out at the Asia qualifier where Thailand went through and the global qualifier as well and, and got to the World Cup. So, you know, Nepal aren't too far off these big international events. And I think the ceiling for Nepal's women is is a lot higher than a lot of other countries. And, you know, we've seen countries like Brazil saying that they're pursuing women's cricket as a, as a development avenue because there's a, a lot more of an opportunity and a, a much more of an open field. And, you know, if Nepal invested in that, I, I think they'd make huge progress very, very quickly based on the, the popularity of the game there. Yeah, it was pretty disappointing when we shared that story uh, into some of the Nepali fan groups as well. There was a sort of a common reply saying, well, they haven't performed well, so therefore they don't deserve the investment. And look, I hate to sound like Alanis Morissette here, but, you know, isn't it ironic, <laughs> you know, that, that this is the argument that emerging cricket nations cop from keyboard warriors talking about full member funding versus associate funding saying, well, you didn't make the World Cup, so why should you get the funding? You know, forgetting the fact the World Cup's been shrunk or for whatever reason, you know, it's a why, why are we using that same flawed logic that gets argued to emerging cricket nations investment to say that we shouldn't be investing in women's cricket in, in Nepal? So yeah, for that difference, what the, the funding they're getting, here he was a real opportunity for them to put a flag in the sand as the first, let's call them a leading associate here. Now, not from an administrative point of view, <laughs> but from a participation and, and passion perspective, you know, Thailand, Brazil have contracts for the women, but they don't have it the sort of scale in terms of public support and Im- image on the world scale. Well, I guess you could say Thailand does now being the World Cup. Here was a chance for, for, for really to cost not a lot of money to make such a statement to global cricket and to see some of these arguments back from their own fans really does disappoint me and I think one of the thoughts was what they don't need is what what they've had in the past which was you know now we got below minimum wage payments and, and empty airports mm. remember that time they got back from the qualifiers and there was nobody mm. there to was meet no them at there, the airport yeah. they came second they came, exactly and like you said Thailand went through that qualifier and went on to the World Cup so that means Thailand will go straight to, assuming things are done like they've continued Thailand goes straight to the global qualifier now meaning that the top spot in that Asia qualifier has a spot so it's really you know 
the Paul's in the box seat for a global qualifier position if they're able to get through the Asia tournament. So it just really disappoints me that, look, I know they've had their struggles from an administration point of view. They've been suspended, but it just really eats at the heart of the game when you can see such an opportunity being wasted where Nepal could have been the toast of, of global cricket. Yeah, and you've given an example better than Alanis Morissette <laughs> did in her song of uh, irony there, which I'm a huge fan of. But there's such an opportunity there, especially in their particular region. You know, Thailand are a great side, and, and that's been well documented, and we've harped on about that. But there's a huge opportunity in women's cricket, especially in this region, to really make your mark. You know, to look on the men's side, you know, the emergence of, of teams like Singapore as well in the men's game make it so difficult for Nepal to make inroads there. But on the women's side, there's a massive opportunity. And yeah, as you said, you know, to play on that popularity of the game in the country, you, you would think that this would be the perfect opportunity to give them every single possible chance of achieving great things, not only in the region, but then, you know, going on to achieving things at, at higher levels of the game. And yeah, it's just so short-sighted because, as you said, Nick, the, the ceiling's so high. You know, that's a really good way of putting it. There's a lot of room to grow there from the Nepali side of things. And yeah, you've got to think it's it's a chicken and egg thing. You know, the argument that we're getting at the moment is, well, they don't deserve to get the money because the results aren't there. You know, the only way to get the results is to actually invest and, and to spend money to, to make money in that sort of way too. So it is really disappointing. And hopefully we'll see something a little bit different come out of this. But and, until we get, you know, official word from Can and, and probably looking towards next year, the year after, and a different framework, but we're probably going to see similar results. Well, and talking about the results, the men's team also crashed out at the regional qualifying level. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't think they're necessarily doing any worse than the blokes. Yeah, look, we've talked about this in the past, haven't we? They got through with skin in their teeth and a couple of events there and they fought out of some tight spots really well. World Cricket League Division 2 in 2018 and then to win the games that they had to in the World Cup qualifier. But it's not like they've set the world on, on fire in terms of the catchment that they have and the talent, you know, that you could say they've underperformed but still done very well as, as we've talked about in the past. But I just find it, I don't know, today's world to have people referring to cricketers like that well they haven't brought the money in so they shouldn't get paid it's like have we moved past that as a society to see what uh, this sport can be to bring people together but yeah i think we've probably covered that one i think we can uh, everyone's got the idea of where we're coming from there well another comment on that would be that competitions like the women's champions league that are popping up in nepal too for women's cricketers can provide an income for these players too as as a supplementary income you know, you never know. We may be proven wrong here. We could have Amir Akhtar, the owner of the EPL, listening to this and, and seeing an opportunity for a Women's Everest Premier League because there's still a gap, I think, in the market in world cricket for a lucrative women's event done the right way. I think the big bash is, is obviously as close as it gets to at the moment, but a global event where um, potential of more overseas players, but also opportunity for these stars to play, you never know. And considering how well starved the countries of, of anything there as well with, with the issues they've got at the moment in Nepal but for all the great facilities they've got some in some beautiful cities that why not be hosting a women's franchise t20 cricket as well some news to wrap up before we do chat to Will Glenwright first to the UK and a third consecutive 50 for Dutch women's international Sarah Callis couldn't save the Northern Diamonds from defeat in the Rachel Hayhoe Flint Trophy final Batting at three, Callis was the ninth wicket to fall, making 55, but struggled to find a partner in the chase of 232. It was a strong tournament for emerging players with Sarah and Catherine Bryce finishing as the second highest run scorer and second highest wicket taker, respectively. 
Malta have shot almost 20 spots up the T20 international rankings after a 2-0 series win over Bulgaria at the National Sports Academy in Sofia. In two high-scoring affairs, Malta defended 216 in the first match, winning by 57 runs, before chasing down a target of 185 in the second T20 international, Heinrich Gerica, making 91 from 54 balls. Malta also leapfrogged their opponents on the rankings in the series victory. Marlow Cricket Club Villamura have taken out the European Cricket Series Cartaxo, beating Alvalade by 10 wickets. Elsewhere in European cricket, Darmstadt have booked a spot at ACL 21, beating Kummerfeld SV in a playoff this week. Darmstadt were denied a tournament berth at ACL 20 due to COVID. And finally, Pakistan has taken out Japan's Embassy Cup, defeating Japan A in the final. For more news, head over to EmergingCricket.com, but next part two of our chat with Will Glenwright, Head of Global Development for the International Cricket Council. Matt Featherstone, Cricket Brazil, this is Noel Vind for Emerging Cricket Podcasts, Gilma Mother Video. Expats, the dreaded term, passport players, and, and those sorts of concepts are, are frequent complaints, you know, of people looking in at associate cricket. You know, where, where does the ICC stand in terms of eligibility? I know I've um, I've looked into it quite a lot, but maybe not all of our listeners have. You know, we, we hear complaints about, for example, the Netherlands have a, a large diaspora population that they can draw quality players from, and, and that might be a bit unfair to other teams who, who don't have that. And then, of course, there's countries like, you know, the UAE, where it's very difficult to obtain a passport. So, in terms of the you know disparities between different countries in their immigration and citizenship laws. How does that fit in with the ICC's attempts to to try and obviously get local people playing the game? Yeah, well, the the whole citizenship issue is a a vexed question and and you're right, it it does always come up and we spend a lot of time discussing it within the game and within the administration of the game. And as you know, we did a review of the ICC eligibility criteria about three years ago. And when you're doing a review of that criteria, you're looking at reviewing a system in a cricket context and the competitiveness of the international game, not so much in the context of citizenship, because you can't control that. How a country structures its own citizenship laws and the issue of passports and the like is a matter for a, a country, and, and we have no influence over, over that. And I should say also that this is an issue in any sport that you work in around the world. I know this was an issue in rugby when I was there. It's an issue in the Olympic movement. It's, it is an issue in any sport. And I think that's demonstrated by, you know, when you do a, a look or a comparison of the different eligibility criteria that's done around the world, and, and you guys have done that on, on your website on that article earlier this year, you can see how diverse it is. And I think that reflects on just how difficult a situation it is. And when you're trying to solve that situation, you you approach that from the perspective of your sport and how you make your sport as competitive and as fair or equitable as it can be. And that's the approach that we took. And one of the big considerations that was taken into account when the review of the eligibility criteria was done back a few years ago was, you know, how, what is the role of international cricket in growing the the game? And how does that compare as a priority with Uh, an investment in domestic pathways and and junior structures. And as I mentioned earlier in the interview, the weightage of domestic cricket structures in the scorecard is very heavily weighted towards, you know, junior and senior pathways, the development of local umpires and coaches or domestic umpires and coaches and local facilities. So we feel that that there is already baked into the ICC funding model a very heavy incentive to grow domestic cricket structures. Then the the issue around 
the composition of national teams, as I mentioned, that's an issue for once we establish the eligibility criteria in a way that we feel is most fair and most equitable and most relevant to the game, that's then a matter for each of our national federations. Now, you, you mentioned that uh, review of the eligibility criteria, and this is something I've been trying to get a, an official answer on for quite a while now. The review happened a little bit after the Philippines fielded some players who were ineligible and they, um, they, they challenged that decision. How influenced by that situation with the Philippines and, and the review, which found in their favour that their players were in fact eligible. How much did that influence the decision to change the eligibility criteria and and bring it more in line with, well, bring it into what it is now? So not not so much. I mean, the review process was a process that we'd already committed to at the time that that situation unfolded, but it demonstrated the need why a review was was necessary because it was felt, um, and not only by management, but also by a development committee and ultimately the board, that there were too many ambiguities in the old eligibility criteria that needed to be addressed or should be addressed in a revised eligibility criteria. And remember also at the same time, the, the Olympic Discussion was ramping up again as well and an important part, of course, of a review of your eligibility criteria of any any sport that aspires to be included in the Olympics is to ensure that you've got criteria that is robust enough for the Olympic movement and, and the IOC. And so what the so it wasn't in response to the Philippines situation or that Philippines case. What it did though was what that case did do is demonstrate why change was necessary. And ultimately that was agreed to by the development committee and, and the board. Well, you're coming up to four years in the role and must have seen some great stories about the game's growth and development. You know, we try and and write about as as many as we hear about or or we uncover. But have you got any two or three particular stories that you'd like to share that perhaps our listeners wouldn't have have heard about and might be interested in? Yeah, I mean, you're right. And um, and actually, I I said when we were talking about um, the coverage that you guys are providing to, you know, the associate game, one of the great joys of this job is being able to see on a daily basis just, you know, how much great work's being done by the members to to grow the game. And in a really diverse range of ways, because we work with countries where um, at one end of the scale where cricket is firmly entrenched in the psyche of the country and is woven deep into the social fabric, right down to countries where cricket is very foreign and just building the awareness of the game is a, is a massive challenge. And we've seen even just in, in my short time or relatively short time within you know, the ICC, some you know, amazing stories of growth, many of the stories of which you've, you've told, like the Nigerias and, and Germany's. I think reflecting over the last 12 months and, and certainly the last six months has been difficult, but the last 12 to 18 months has been interesting. And, and there are more and more countries stepping up, I guess, in, in growing the game. And I think where some of the great stories of development are materialising are in are in some of the smaller countries. So if we take in the South Americas, for example, one of the legacy programs we introduced on the back of the Women's T20 World Cup in the Caribbean back in 2018 was a program called Mothers and Daughters, a MAD program, which was a very simple program aimed at encouraging more female participation by, I guess, tapping into the bond between mothers and daughters. So there was a dual purpose between it. It was about family spending more time together and cricket's a great sport for spending time together and through that getting more 
women and girls uh, into the program. And we had great support from all the participating teams at the World Cup to build awareness around this program. And what's been great to see over the past couple of years is the momentum that that has taken um, within each of the members. And, and members have taken it off into completely different directions. And you know, Chile, who won the regional award in the ICC Development Awards that we announced uh, a couple of months back, is a, you know, as a classic example. You know, from a cricketing perspective, a very small country, but some of the stuff they're doing to build awareness and their MAD program is focused in particular around beach cricket has been brilliant. And we learn a lot from that as well, because I think there's as much to learn from those countries who are trying to grow a game in a country where there isn't that cricket heritage as we do from the likes of, of the Nepals and, and some of the, um, the bigger cricket countries. Um, Bhutan's another really interesting country. I mean, they, they've established and it's been in place for a few years now, a partnership with UNICEF, which is a program that started off as a sort of community development program, particularly around um, education for women and girls, but has blossomed into this enormous mass participation program to the point where, you know, their participation increased more than doubled last year or in 2019, between 2018 and 2019 to 36,000 participants and to the point where they've become one of our top five fastest growing members and that's from a very small base only only a few years ago but they've developed that through a partnership and partnerships are something that we've focused really heavily on in our work over the past few years there's a, a feeling within the team that in order to achieve the scale of growth that we're aspiring to we can only do that through partnerships and it's been wonderful to see some of the members do that and Bataan's partnership with UNICEF um, Indonesia is another country that we're really excited about, probably from a different reason. And again, it shows the importance of, and we were talking earlier about multi-sport games, uh, be it the Olympics, be it regional games, sub-regional games, or even national games. And, and what we're seeing in, in Indonesia uh, through cricket's inclusion and the pond games there, the national games in, in Indonesia is really interesting. And as a result of that, cricket outside of Jakarta is really gaining momentum. We're starting to see semi-professional cricket emerging in, in states there. And as a result, We've got a member federation in Indonesia that are incredibly involved and very ambitious, um, not only from a high performance perspective, but also from a participation base. And, and they're working incredibly hard now with really strong tailwinds behind them to get cricket entrenched through its inclusion in the national games as part of a, you know, more entrenched in the, in the sports system within Indonesia. So it's a country we're incredibly excited about. Nick spoke to them in back in the 2019, didn't you, Nick? Yes, and yeah, uh, yeah. very bold in, in the it was the president's answer. He said t- test nation in 10 years was their goal. Yes, so I that's think they right. Yeah. 80,000 participants at that point, I think it was. So I think that's really in line with what you're talking about there. But it was very interesting to hear someone be so bold and, and to say that so many associates are talking about full membership these days with a decoupled approach to test cricket. Yeah. But to hear someone building the game in Indonesia and the story is amazing. They're sort of crossing cultural boundaries there, both in the men's and women's game, which is really inspiring. But um, yeah, it sounds like they've just gone from uh, strength to strength. Yeah. No, they've, um, they're, they're really coming along well. They've got a, a well-connected board that are very engaged with the, the game, a really, as you would know, a very strong and determined administration. We've done a lot of work with them during the lockdown, particularly on their commercial strategy, which has been really interesting. And the targets that they're seeking as a result of that work is, you know, it's really exciting. And if they can unlock some of that potential there, then it's just great for the global game, not just for the game in Indonesia. Are they another one, the fact that they're talking about multi-sports games within Indonesia and still having that pool of those particular games, unlike in Australia where, or whatnot, where cricket is not involved in those events, are they another one where Olympic inclusion would be a boon? 
Yeah, ab- absolutely. And it just goes to show just how important all the multi-sport games are. Um, I think what, yes, that Indonesia experience just shows how important inclusion in multi-sport games is, what inclusion in the Olympic Games potentially offers the associate members, and not only from an exposure perspective, but just access to government funding and government infrastructure and the like. And it's on that basis that we continue to aspire to Olympic inclusion and and inclusion of curriculum in multi-sport games. Um, speaking of the Asian region, and we, we've seen this come up a, a couple of times throughout Nepal's ban by the ICC and now looking towards a place like Cambodia who are trying to start up their own Premier League despite not being an ICC member. I'm interested to know what the process is in, in sanctioning cricket for places outside of ICC membership. What's the process there? Would you be able to elaborate on that? So we don't really have any jurisdiction to sanction cricket outside of our, our members. I mean, the, the integrity of the whole sanctioning process is underpinned by the the member relationship with the international federation. So, we, as I said, we don't really have the jurisdiction to sanction games in in non-member countries. With that said, we certainly have an ambition to help anyone who's seeking to to grow the game and and deliver the game. You know, there is an ongoing discussion around how many members should we be aspiring or how many countries should we be aspiring to have as members of the ICC. There's a very clear process that's in place for any country that is seeking to be a member. We think it's a a readily attainable criteria or minimum criteria that needs to be established and our regional offices remain on hand to help any member that is seeking to achieve that and we're working with a number of countries at the moment to hold their hand through the application process. I I would say and I'm not overly familiar with the situation in Cambodia but I would say you know where we would prioritise directing our assistance would be in uh, firstly in getting them as a member of the ICC rather than necessarily helping them run an international cricket event because once they are a member then we're far more readily able to, to help them across the whole gamut of the game's development not just around the hosting of, of international events. Um, you mentioned you're working with a few countries to try and potentially help them join by the sounds of it. You know, what is the process if a country does want to join the ICC? Because you know, we know there are minimum standards for facilities and, and leagues and participation and whatnot, but it's quite difficult to achieve that you know, just from scratch with no help. So I guess what does the ICC do to try and get them to that point where they can apply and join? Yeah, you're, you're right, and, and that, that's an observation that's been made to us before and something that we've been responsive to, particularly by those or, you know, individuals within countries that are aspiring to do. And we don't underestimate how difficult it can be to, for example, meet a minimum standard of getting eight domestic teams playing a minimum of five games in a year in a country that's never heard of cricket or where the awareness of it is, is relatively low. So in, in recognition of that, we have worked on... and So the resources that we have developed over the past two to three years to, to grow the game within the existing members are made available to those members who are aspiring to join. So if we take, for example, the entry-level program, which is just coming out of the pilot phase now, that would be, as an example, available to a country that's seeking to be a member in order to um, have a program that can be delivered in, in schools or in community groups with a view to 
creating again a you know sort of critical mass of participants that might one day build the capacity to to have eight local teams. So the entry level program that we've developed is that program that's targeted towards schools uh, and community groups. It's um, designed to be delivered in countries where there is or it doesn't require, I should say, a strong understanding of the game of cricket. Instead, it's designed to introduce the fundamentals of the game. So that's one example. Where and if we can run coaching courses in those countries as well or create a link to a nearby country that might be able to assist them. And we're seeing that in, in Africa with Cote d'Ivoire, for example. You know, we will look to do that as well. So as much as we can do through the provision of resources in particular, we're doing, can we do more? Look, I think we can always do more. We, always, we have to balance that up with how we prioritise the introduction of new members or taking the game to new countries with adequately servicing our existing membership base as well. And that's something that we're always grappling with. But as more and more of our programs come online, um, the more easily we're able to make those resources available to um, aspiring countries to help them. So just speaking on this topic of facilities as as one of the uh, requirements for membership, you know, we saw you tweeted recently about uh, a partnership with Nigeria and the pitch curation uh, education program that you've piloted from the development team. Tell us a bit about that project and you know, where is it going to go next? You did mention that it was uh, going to an expanded pilot. So it's a, it's a relatively new addition to our education offering, I guess, to members. Initially, as we started developing our, our education program, we focused on coaches and umpires, and that was to address a critical need or, of for coaches and umpires, particularly at the entry level of the, of the game. What emerged during lockdown was Nigeria Cricket Federation, on account of their continued growth and in particular qualification of their under-19s team at the World Cup, uh, is seeing more and more state-based partnerships for the game and therefore an injection of funding to create more cricket facilities throughout Nigeria. And for those that follow them on on social media, you will have seen uh, recently a number of new developments that have have come online. And they approached us for some assistance on that. They said, look, we've overcome the biggest hurdle, which is to get access A, to the green space and and B, to the funding needed to build a facility, but we need the technical expertise to grow the pitches. So we worked with our pitch consultant, Andy Atkinson, to sort of guide them through and some of their members through a 10-week pitch curation course. And that was really designed to help those that were building the facility to understand the mechanics of building a turf cricket pitch. We started, I think, with about 20 participants. By about halfway through, we had about 60, I think we got up to 68 or 69 participants on the course. And we rapidly arrived at the conclusion that there's a real need for this um, and so we started a conversation throughout, you know, through our regional offices with other regions and with, with a view to trying to get an understanding of just how, how big this demand was. And it turns out it's quite large. So to make a long story short, we've now decided to include pitch curation as the third element on our training and education program. So we're in the process of formalising that curriculum now into a format that can be delivered both online and face-to-face. And pitch curation in, in particular is something that does require an element of face-to-face education. So we're working on developing that curriculum at the moment and we're going to do an expanded pilot at the end of this year in wider Africa, Asia and the Americas to test that curriculum before hopefully looking to roll it out in totality or globally next year. Just on that pitch question, we've seen Vanuatu 
using their hybrid wicket with artificial turf and, and clay over the top. And T20 internationals can be played on, on synthetic now for men and women. Just thinking about this great education program that, you know, 65 people there learning about turf, maybe may a cricket pitch in, in Nigeria is just an, an amazing thought in itself. Do you, in the future, cricket looking down the line, how important do you think it will be to be playing cricket on natural turf versus the potential of a hybrid pitch that I think, you know, looking at how easy it is to curate could be uh, uh, somewhere in the middle, hybrid if, if you will, it's a clever name, um, or, or artificial wickets itself. So I think hybrid and artificial pitches are the future of the game, particularly in the in the associate members. I think it's brilliant that we are allowing T20Is to be played on, on artificial pitches. One of the biggest challenges, if not the biggest challenge we faced to growing the game is access to facilities. And that's not a challenge that's unique to cricket. That's a challenge that faces the industry all over in any sport. And so we need to be flexible and agile enough to enable the game to be played on as wide a variety of facilities and services as we can possibly allow it without affecting the integrity of the game. And I think this becomes um, of, or of greater importance when we talk about the international game because by enabling the game to be played on hybrid or artificial pitches, you automatically open the door to more countries being able to host ICC events and international cricket. And I think that's been one of the real successes of awarding of T20I status to all members and the relaxation of the hosting criteria around that. The, the fact that we saw 71 of our members play T20I cricket last year in, in 2019, you know, is a testament to that. That's not something that could be done if we require the game to be played on turf pitches. So my very firm view on this at both the community level and the international level is that hybrid and artificial pitches are the future of the game and we have to come up, we have to continue to look for solutions in that regard. So why not ODIs? If you're, you know, if you're relaxing T20 internationals, uh, what's the, I guess, roadblock to relaxing the criteria for ODIs? You know, why, why can't uh, two teams play 50 over games if they can play 20 over games? Look, I think it's a, it's a good question and it's a space that we are relatively new in. The Cricket Operations Department are doing a research project on hybrid pitches at the moment and I think one of the things we want to better understand, uh, which is a point I touched on earlier, is how we can develop hybrid pitches that don't impact or replicate, I should say, the integrity and the nuances of turf pitches. I mean, and I'll say this as a cricket fan, one of the beauties of our game is the fact that the pitch offers so much to the theatre of cricket. The turf pitch offers so much to the theatre of cricket. And I think uh, that's one of the beautiful aspects of our of our game. And we wouldn't want to necessarily lose that as we seek to you know, evolve as a game. So it's on that basis, I guess, that we continue to embark on the research project around hybrid pitches. Uh, we're not there yet in terms of being able to play ODIs there, but I, I would hope personally that we would get there sometime in the future. Would it also be fair to say that with a lot of the newer ICC members and the larger emphasis on T20 cricket, that maybe the lack of opportunity and the lack of time to host 50 over matches is another reason why that hasn't really been pushed as yet? Yeah, well, I mean, as we talked about earlier, not as many of our members play ODI or 50 over cricket that's not just a cricket issue that's as much to do with as you talked about access to facilities time and and the like as it is anything else so yeah i think that's definitely part of it more of our members are playing t20i or or t20 cricket both domestically and and internationally and i think that's a big part of why we're seeing so much cricket being played at that level and why we have had to prioritize how, how we can 
facilitate that playing of that game or that format of the game more readily. Um, as we come towards the end of our chat, and thank you so much, Will, for joining us to talk about so many different topics and, and the way that everything runs. Thinking about you know some of the places you've gone around and, and watched cricket around the world, either you know within your role now or potentially um, beforehand, where are some of the, the highlights? Where are some of the, the favourite places to watch cricket for you? There's a few few that spring to mind and possibly for different reasons. I think the first one that does come to mind is the Gahanga Cricket Stadium in, in Rwanda for a couple of reasons. One, it's just a fantastic story. We talked earlier about the importance of partnerships. And again, that's another great example of what can be achieved when like-minded partners work together and work so hard. And that is just a beautiful cricket facility. Um, I think everyone's seen the photos or anyone that has an interest in associate cricket or the game or broadly will have seen the photos of that stadium. And it is just a stunning cricket venue in a stunning city so I feel very fortunate to have been over there and, and experienced that firsthand. For a different reason Hanoabada village in Papua New Guinea is a fascinating place I mean that is a that is a village that just is cricket and to wander around there and see the game being played to see traffic and streets on a Saturday morning converted into cricket pitches or cricket ovals is just something that you've got to see to be believed it's just wonderful and it's no surprise that so many of the barramundis have come out of that village because it's just a it's a remarkable scene and a great cricket village and then probably the third one and this won't be a surprise to anyone but i think it should be on the bucket list of any cricket supporter around the world is is Tribhuvan university in Kathmandu. i was there it was a few years ago now i think for the old wcl uh, in the LWCL tournament between Kenya and, and Nepal. Uh, it was a crappy day. It was freezing cold and there was, it had been pouring with rain just beforehand, but it was a capacity crowd and I've, I've never experienced an atmosphere like that at a cricket ground. The, the roar for singles and twos were as loud as the roars for fours and it was just non-stop for eight hours. <laughs> and, 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 and it's a you know, stunning backdrop. Uh, of course, and it's just got to, it's an experience that you've got to see to, to believe. And I think I said at the time on, on Twitter, I think I've been fortunate to go to a lot of sporting events ar around the world and, and see the passion of sports fans. And um, when I came back from Nepal, I, I said, when you die and, and you go to the pearly gates, you're going to be cheered through by Nepal cricket fans on one side <laughs> and Fiji and rugby fans on the other. And I just think that's true there. They were the most passionate supporters of their country and, this, and their respective sports that you can see. And that's just a, a great experience. Good answer. Oh, yeah, that's pretty powerful. The TU ground is, yeah, it is incredible. I haven't been lucky enough to go there for an international match. And yeah, it's definitely on the bucket list. Yeah, it was going to happen probably the start of this year and then things got in the way. But it's just, oh, the, the thing about Nepal for me is that it, it almost reignited my love for cricket a little bit because the way that they, the energy around it and the passion that they have for it just rubs off on you. And it's just, it's so hard to describe, but like the energy, the energy around, even when they're playing and it's, it can be 35 degrees or it can be eight degrees there but they're still as keen no matter what to walk in with the bowler and and jump in and try and field like jaunty roads for everything it's just uh, yeah i can't it, it's so hard to describe without without being there and, and some of the backdrops in some of the other grounds there there's um, a ground at Pokhara where the Annapurnas are in the background as well. Mm. Kind of similar to what Dharamshala looks like in India for um, international fixtures. It's just that. But um, if anything, probably a little bit clearer because the, the air there is a little bit nicer. But yeah, it's so hard to describe. So people... Um, 
take Mr. Glenn Wright's advice there <laughs> and and head to Nepal as soon as as soon as you can because the, they need the tourism as well. You know, straight after that earthquake in 2015 as well, they've had it pretty tricky and and with some frosty ties around that part of the world with some of the powers on either side of them, it's quite precarious. So yeah, I'll I'll implore the Nepali trip as well. Well, I'll, I'll take your word for it, Bez. But the the thing about Nepal, it just it's what cricket could be and should be all around the associate world. You know, it's just a glimpse of where I think we we could and should be going mm. in in terms of the the crowds and the cheering and the enthusiasm and it just fires you up every time you, you see the stream as grainy as it might be with uh, with some amusing ads but you know why can't cricket do that all around the world i think nepal is just it's the benchmark really yeah well that, and that's the opportunity that lies ahead of us i, I think and you and you're right nick that's what you aspire to i think it's what a lot of our members aspire to it's, we we talked earlier about the accessibility of the game and i think that's the real beauty of it and if it can be embraced in the way that it has been in nepal over a relatively brief history notwithstanding how long the game's been played there you're right that's the opportunity that lies ahead for so many of our countries around the world um, that i think is unique to cricket in terms of how easily it can be played and accessed by anyone anywhere yeah, and we talk about global events being hosted potentially in associates in the future. I know Malaysia's already talked about expressive interest about hosting a, a World Cup, likewise with the US with a joint bid with the West Indies. But gee, if we see a fully functioning and efficient cricket association in Nepal and some grounds, wouldn't that be an amazing place to host? Well, even a global qualifier, but imagine a World Cup in Nepal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, they're on the right track, Tim. Um, we can say that much about them. They're, they're heading in the right direction. So let's hope you're right. All right, we've um, asked you all the easy questions. And <laughs> we, this is something we ask of all of our guests and everyone that's got this far. They know what it is. Well, Glenn Wright, Head of Global Development for the ICC. You, you have the, the chalice and the power. You can change one law in the amazing sport of cricket. What is it and why? Okay, uh, well, I'm glad you asked the question on, on hybrid and artificial pitches earlier because my answer is linked to that. The, the law that I would change in cricket is the rain law. I would love to see cricket being able to be played in the rain. I hate to th- and the reason for that is I, I hate to think how much time and money we lose to wet weather and rain. Um, as a young player, the most devastating thing you could ever wake up to on a Saturday morning before your game was to clouds and, and rain. Mm. And back when I was growing up, we had the whole when you had to phone up your you had there was a, a answering machine that you would phone up to get oh yeah from the council yeah yeah and then it would say the game's cancelled. But I wouldn't take no for an answer, and I'd keep phoning up hoping <laughs> that particularly if the if the sun had broken. <laughs> Out, hoping that someone had changed the voicemail message to say, no, no, we made a mistake, all of a sudden the game's on. <laughs> and it's just a devastating. And I figure if Formula One drivers can drive fuel-laden rockets around a, a track in the rain, then surely we can play a game of cricket in the, in the rain, and I'd love to see that. What do you reckon, Tim? How do your, how do your fingers cope in the wet weather? I'm the worst bowler in the wet. And up bowling is like little kind of limp-wristed kind of seam-ups and I'm, I'm, I'm useless. So I, I have to agree, though. Like there's an element of the game there that who knows what they'll be talking about in the future. You might have a wet ball bowler who's a specialist who gets picked in those games because they're really good with a with a wet ball. But it makes me think about it and it's like, oh, shock me, Tim, another Hong Kong uh, story. But when <laughs> Hong Kong played Bangladesh in 2014 in the World Cup and beat them in Chittagong, still the world's one of the world's biggest upsets, you know, more b- bigger than South Africa 
Africa being beaten by Japan or Iceland being in England. You combine them together. If you look at the number of cricketers in Hong Kong versus that in Bangladesh. Anyway, that's not the story. But when they were they were training for playing in Chittagong under lights, they were actually putting the cricket balls in a bucket of water in the nets to get used to the conditions of what they would do. So, so of a certain left arm who will remain nameless, who took three wickets in that game and was, um, I think he was man of the match in the end, but had actually been practicing with, with a, a literal wet ball because they knew that the ball would be sopping wet with the dew of an evening. So look, it's already been done to some degree, but I guess, you know, talking about those pitches, it's the safety of the wickets as well. We've all played there in a wet one with... Um, spikes and slipping it everywhere but uh, wouldn't be the case with better pitch technology but no that's a good one and that's a, a unique answer we have a lot of crossovers with runouts and overthrows and man cads and the uh, and the spirit of the game but um, no that's good we should probably be keeping track of these to uh, to, to come up with an, the emerging cricket podcast uh, alternative laws of cricket but uh, no that that's one that's one for the archivists to uh, go back on but I think yeah one more thing with that is is starting in the rain too when, oh yes yeah you know it needs to be absolutely bone dry will completely stop raining for, for people to go back on when sometimes you just get that really weak drizzle and it's a case of well you know in any other sport we wouldn't be having this conversation but now we're going to wait half an hour and you know for, for for no play and then well and and if it had been drizzling they would have kept playing but yeah that's right that, yeah that too it's as frustrating as being as at your grandma's house and being told you can't swim for half an hour until after you've eaten <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you can't open your Christmas presents until after the lunch. And when you're 10 years old, it's the worst thing. No, you see that spot of rain, you can't go out there and play. But it was raining like this when we came off. No, yeah. no, no. no great source of frustration for players and, and fans alike, I think. And yeah, of course, it would need to, um, you, you couldn't do that on, on turf pitches. But um, if you had a hybrid or artificial pitch, then I think it brings wet weather cricket into, into play. And you see it in all other sports like soccer and, uh, and rugby and Formula One. The equipment is altered the style of play is is altered um, but the game goes on and that's what's most important maybe like the old school Adidas football boots where they had uh, the Predators uh, Craig Johnston's jeez no I was going back to an older story where I think it was the Hungarians one year lost to might have been Germany I could be very wrong but they had studs on their boots that were the first team to have studs on their on their boots and then when the rain came down they didn't slip over the other team did but maybe there's a, a gap in the market for wet weather cricket shoes once we find ourselves playing in more wet weather conditions yeah you can have your slicks and your wet weather boots. Well, once again, William Glenwright, thank you for joining us on the Emerging Cricket Podcast. Spent a lot of time with us breaking down a lot of the uh, goings-on in the International Cricket Council. And as the head of global development, we thank you once again for joining us. And yeah, let's just hope that we can uh, chat more about growing the game internationally and we continue to harp on about your positive work. Yeah, well, look, thanks for having me. It's been great to, it's been great to talk cricket. Uh, with you guys and thanks for all your support and for shining a light on the work that's being done by our members to, to grow the game. It's been a great chat. Thank you. A huge thank you again to Will Glenwright of the ICC joining us on the Emerging Cricket Podcast. That's everything in the Emerging Game this week. Make sure to subscribe to the Emerging Cricket Podcast if you haven't done so already so you can tune in as soon as it drops every week. Pass the pot around and make sure to give us a five-star review. If you want to support us financially, go to Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Emerging Cricket, where you can support us from as little as $2 US a month. You'll get access to extended cuts of a number of our shows, and you can have a say on the show's direction. For now, on behalf of Nick Skinner, Tim Cutler, and myself, Daniel Beswick, see you next week.